The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to a special Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm Natasha Faroz and I'm joined by Katie Balls and Scarlett Maguire, who is the director at JLL Partners. Today we're going to be talking about the green agenda in Westminster politics. It's something that both parties can't seem to agree on at the moment. Katie, why is that? If we go back to the by-election results last week, the surprise result, or the one I think that took most people by surprise, but perhaps not all Coffee House Shots listeners, was Uxbridge, which the Tories managed to hold on to by under 500 votes, so it was pretty close. But it meant that even though you had these historic wins, very much in uh, Selby, where Labour took it from the Tories, a lot of the post-mortem has been about what went wrong for Labour in Uxbridge and what went right for the Tories. And we know that the Tories put down their success to a campaign on ULES, which meant they could unite around a single issue and say Sadiq Khan has bringing in this expensive policy that's punishing motorists and you had even the Labour candidate um, saying you know now is not the time for this expansion and therefore when you're reading the runes people have almost jumped from that to say well if that worked there what could we do on a national scale in a general election campaign and although that was about air pollution it doesn't take long before you start talking about net zero in terms of the 2030 ban on new diesel and petrol and What I think was initially Labour MPs almost turning on each other uh, straight after the result with Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner making the choice to have a a public fight with Sadiq Khan about it has now become Tory MPs fighting with one another in the sign that all parties have it in them. Speaking to some figures in government this week, they they did did, uh, say, you know, how have we got to the point where it was looking pretty good at the weekend? But yet this week, yes, the Tories have been talking quite successfully about housing. But the other big story has been this minister says this on net zero. It looks like they're opening the door. Rishi Sunak would not completely say, you know, all the net zero targets would stay. But then you had Michael Gove coming up and saying, actually, no, definitely the pet, um, the car target will stay in place. And therefore you have some MPs who are in the net zero scrutiny group, for example, who would like to see some of these targets delayed. The Daily Mail also running a campaign on the 2030 car ban. And then you have actually also quite a lot of MPs on the other side of the debate in the conservative environment group. They tend to be, and again, all these comparisons are a little bit broad, but it tends to be the ones who are most committed to the net zero agenda are those in uh, southern seats, blue wall seats, often the Lib Dems are the second largest party. And then those who tend to be much more, let's revisit this, let's have a war on net zero, tend to be red wall MPs, um, where they think that cost of living crisis is going to be what appeals to their voters. And Scarlett, that, that is a reflection of voting patterns, isn't it? It isn't, it isn't. So, I mean, I think taking the Uxbridge by-election result and then learning a lesson that the British public want to junk net zero and all its initiatives would definitely be the wrong lesson to learn. Broadly speaking, there is support for that 2050 net zero target. In fact, I think it has majority support across every age group and every region. So even in those sort of red wall constituencies, people think they want things to be done about climate change. People are worried about climate change and they are sort of quite progressive in their approach to what they would like to be done. However, I think the thing with you, Les, and then some of these other measures which have been talked about, like the boiler ban 
or um, diesel and petrol cars by 2030. I think when people do start having a problem is when they do intersect, I mean, yes, with the cost of living, because obviously there's a crisis going on at the moment, but also with a sense of fairness. So I think if people think they're being punished, if things are too punitive, and they're too costly on a day-to-day life when they're already struggling, that's when they're going to start having a problem with it. And I think that's the that was the thing about EULA's much more than about being net zero. Katie, do you think some people have been talking about like the environment isn't a culture war issue? Is is it something that Rishi Sunak can use that as leverage to try and pin it into that bracket of being a culture war? I think we can use the phrase culture war a bit broadly to cover, you know, so many issues where actually is it a culture war um, having a conversation about the costs of policies that effectively are going to have a huge impact um, in terms of people's household finances, but also potentially the future of the planet and having that trade-off. You know, that's not necessarily uh, a war on woke to ask a few questions about it. Of course, it depends a bit how you package these things. And there will be some Tory MPs who would, you know, actually quite like to run in kind of a junk net zero, Labour, don't want you to have a car, you know, go quite bold in the messaging. I think that to Scarlett's point about the polling, it often does look as though people are very pro net zero, which is why I think number 10 are being quite careful about this. But as you get to, oh, so would you have a heat pump? What would you feel about this? That's where the polling starts to go in lots of different directions um, when you look at it loosely. And therefore, it's it's the trade-offs. You know, it's very easy to say, oh, I'm behind net zero. I think you have to take it with specific polling and public opinion on all the measures that actually cost you money. And all of a sudden, it's a, it's a more complicated picture. I think also it's really easy for any prime minister to say... I'm sticking with a target for 2040 or 2050. I'm very committed, as much as they might believe in themselves. I don't even think um, that even the most confident politician thinks they're still going to be around at that point. Um, so, and also, the, probably you'll have had three different changes, at least in terms of the governing party in that time. So you're almost passing the buck on. So therefore, I think there probably is a landing zone. And obviously, you do have to report as part of the agreement on how you are going to get to these later down the targets. So you still have to do some things now. But you can start to see how potentially there could be some ways to ease or soften it. It's quite interesting that uh, this week you've had Tony Blair, former prime minister, now now uh, trying to have Keir Starmer's ear as Labour looks close to power. But effectively saying on climate change you have to not punish voters too much because it's all about China now lots of Tory MPs say that and I think increasingly if it looks as though it's just the other countries are not making those difficult decisions that's when you're going to have some resentment and you look to I think other elections around the world you can almost read too much from them but if you think to the two most recent Australia elections the first one uh, so uh, not the most recent when the liberals had that surprise victory did a bit better they pinpointed on a backlash on environmental measures um which stopped labor from getting in but then the second election saw the rise of the teal candidates which were very pro taking action on climate change and the liberals had a horrible result so it can swing in both ways depending what people are the most concerned about I think there probably is a way for the Tories to uh, listen to some of the concerns for example the motorists I mean there are some practical issues here which is for example it's not a war and wake to ask do we currently have the charging points for the 2030 target when it comes to electric vehicles and things like that? Because if the infrastructure is not there, you're going to have some very angry voters if they are forced to go for more expensive things and then actually the system isn't even working in a way which um, compared to a petrol cart would. 
And Scarlett, some of the things that Katie said about the individual pollen, because there's some policies that are way more popular than others. And I think I saw that like the frequent flyer policy is really popular. Could you explain some of those? Yeah, I mean, it's basically what Katie was saying, and you're right about the frequent flyer. So there has been polling done. Um, it's a little bit older, but there has been polling done that looks at individual measures, especially when taking into account the financial cost. And it makes very clear in the question that this will come with a financial penalty, you know, to your day-to-day lives or whenever... And actually, yeah, most of the measures then do not receive support. Frequent flyers is one, the one that comes out on top, like a frequent flyer levy. Why is that, do you think? I think maybe people think the people who will be fly- flying incredibly frequently will be the better off anyway and be living a more luxurious lifestyle and can afford to pay for more. Because I think that is part of the problem with things like ULEZ is people don't perceive them to be means-tested or there's no sense of fairness in who is bearing the brunt of this cost for the transition. So I think that's the thing with frequent flyers that appeals more to maybe people sense of fairness and also on heat pumps i think that's an interesting one because you have obviously incentive schemes to try and get people to get more heat pumps but yet it seems that every day you have a new horror story of someone who has got a heat pump who say it's not working in, in the right way you've noticed that some of the conservatives that are anti-net zero are being brought to the forefront and then the ones that are really enthusiastic about net zero are, are being pushed to the sidelines slightly So I think what's actually quite interesting is if you look at the One Nation Tories normally, they tend to be better behaved, I think you could say, at least from the whip's office perspective, better behaved than some of the MPs on the right of the party, European Research Group, um, even, you know, Red Wall MPs, the new Conservatives, these caucuses. And often the One Nation MPs just seem to suck it up when it comes to things they don't really like. I think here... They are much more vocal than they are on other issues. So you have the Conservative Environment Network. Now, that's a very well-organised group, over 100 MPs, you know, who received their messages. Um, And part of the reason the Net Zero has got so much attention this week is because it's not just a few MPs coming out and saying we should junk it. You then have figures um, coming out, such as Alok Sharma, Zach Goldsmith, to say, no, don't do that. That would be a very bad idea. So I think both sides are quite keen to fight on this one. And... If you think back, I think even, you know, 2017 election, now you've got to separate net zero as obviously one part of environment policy. There's also nature policy and sometimes it can all get quite wrapped in it. But after the 2017 election, where I think this was much more animal welfare, but Theresa May, some of her loose comments on fox hunting, some things on ivory ban and so forth, this it created a big backlash amongst voters. And I think some of the most viral stories of that election were about those issues. And then the Tories, um, I remember doing this, they did this polling to MPs on areas where they thought they could own the agenda and the environment was one of them. Um, so you've had in the past, yes, David Cameron said, you know, get rid of the green crap, but also that he had vote blue, go green. So it can be seen as a really useful tool when it comes to those Lib Dem Tory voters, which is why if Rishi Sunak were to say we're doing something very drastic on this, you would have a big backlash because there would be part of the Tory voter coalition that would not like it. That said, I don't think Rishi Sunak is as attached to the environment agenda as his predecessor Boris Johnson. And certainly on net zero, he has long been more aware of the trade-offs than at least Boris Johnson was willing to talk about publicly. From being in the Treasury and as Chancellor in that role, he's, he's seen all those things coming up. So I think you have someone who is probably 
in a position where they'd be more likely to re-examine some of these things, but will know the electoral risks of doing so. In principle, as with all these net zero measures, people are supportive. However, when you make clear that there are financial costs and implications to them personally for having to do this, then you see support plummet. And that's exactly what happens with gas boilers and heat pumps. So the support for the policy goes into net opposition as soon as people actually understand what's involved for them. And I think this is one of the reasons where if you speak to, I think, ministers who are not particularly on either side of this debate, they think that innovation and probably new technology to come is what is going to get them out of the hole in the long term. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Scarlett. And thanks for listening.